0: Welcome to Gemcast. This is our second episode, and I am so excited to be here with a very special guest, a woman who has done more for the field of emergency medicine than almost anyone else in the world. She's known the world round for her work on her book, Tintinelli's Emergency Medicine. I'm here with none other than Dr. Judith Tintinelli. Welcome. Good morning, Chris. So we're here to talk about a very interesting case that she had in the emergency department that highlights some important concepts about the care of older adults. Dr. T, why don't you go ahead and introduce your case for us.
1: One of my recent cases involved an unexpected clinical catastrophe in a healthy and vital elderly woman. Determining the appropriate care plan involved lengthy and complex discussions with her family and also multiple consultants. And I coordinated all of this in the ED. I needed to get information about care issues and disease prognosis in domains that far exceeded the usual scope of emergency care.
0: Tell me about the patient. How did she present?
1: Well, it was the usual busy 6 p.m. to 2 a.m. shift in the ED.
0: Can I just break in and say, when you leave at 2 a.m., you seem to have more energy than me when I come in at 11 p.m. But go ahead with your
1: with your story. Sorry. (laughs) It's because I'm happy to go home. (laughs) In room one was an elderly man with urosepsis. In room two, a yellow trauma motor vehicle crash. Next, we heard possible stroke code and my resident and I jumped to attention. EMS reported that this 92-year-old woman was found collapsed in her living room after knitting. A granddaughter stopped by that afternoon, found the patient unresponsive, and therefore we could not determine the time of collapse. So, one problem solved. No stroke code and a STAT head CT to rule out a bleed. The patient had an NIHSS score of about nine, and just as we expected, CT showed a large intracerebral bleed. The resident and I were really aghast because we knew the patient's hemorrhage could be treated neurosurgically. But we also knew if she survived, her quality of life would never be the same.
0: This is such a tough case where we have an intervention, but is the intervention really something that is in the best interest of the patient? So what did you do?
1: We consulted neurosurgery. And in many cases and many times, this would be the end of the involvement by the emergency physician. Neurosurgery would decide what to do, move along, and that would be that. But I decided to take a more aggressive approach, and by the time the family arrived, I presented them with their grandmom's diagnosis and her grave prognosis, being grave whether she lived or died. So I started gathering information. What was her grandmother's condition before today's event? They said, oh, wow, she was very vibrant, sharp as a tack, drove her own car, liked to bake, cook, sew, and knit, And lived by herself.
0: And did she have any medical
1: problems? She had a primary care doctor. Basically, we gathered just due to her age, she took no medicines and had never been in the hospital or had any surgeries.
0: Did you know if she had a living will or a most form or any other sort of statement about her wishes for her end-of-life care? After establishing a little rapport
1: with the family, I was able to get into that in a way that I felt comfortable. Basically, what they knew is that their grandmother said if she ever got really sick, she wouldn't want to live that way, really sick. She wanted to stay independent. She would want to die. I asked them more questions. Well, do you know if that meant if she had a stroke? And they said she never wanted to live and be paralyzed. By that time, neurosurgery came down. They evaluated the patient. They were very caring and compassionate and offer the family neurosurgical decompression for the bleed. The resident told them she was a good surgical candidate.
0: Interesting. And do you know if he talked to them about what her condition would be like after the surgery?
1: I said, could you tell the family what would happen after the surgery? And his answer was, she would be in the ICU and then go into rehab. I decided I would have to take, again, more of an aggressive approach. I left the resident to take care of all the other patients in the ED, and I decided to focus in on this family. So I said to the neurosurgeon, well, what do you think her neurologic capability would be then after surgery? He said, well, to the family, it's hard to say. She'll die without surgery for sure. With surgery, she'll probably live, but she'll be left with handicaps. So I thought let me consult neurology, because they may have more information to offer, and certainly, if the patient is not admitted to neurosurgery, it would be the neurologist who would take care of her. Luckily, there was a neurologist on call who had time to really get involved with the case. I would say, with both neurosurgery and neurology, there is only one team in the hospital at any one time, and they're usually swamped with consults, and much of their time is spent on determining a rabid disposition. So today was a lucky day. So the neurologist said, your grandmother, if she has the surgery, she will be left with severe stroke deficits, and she will have to be treated in rehab. Do you think that she would want to live that way? The family was getting worried. You could see that they felt guilty, very guilt-ridden about making a decision that may cause her to die, or making a decision that would cause her to live in a way she did not want to live.
0: I think this is such a hard decision for families to make, especially if the patient has not had a discussion with the family previously about what they would want. And when you say, when the family hears, oh, the patient will go to rehab, they might not necessarily understand what that could mean. It could mean a trach in a peg tube for feeding and breathing. It could mean she will slowly recuperate and eventually walk again, or she could be completely bed-bound. I think this is really difficult because when the alternative is death and the other options are not clear... That's why it's so hard for families, and so I can understand why this was taking a lot of your time to try to help coordinate and take care of them.
1: I think when we use the word rehab, that has a positive connotation, and frankly, we use that because we didn't want to say nursing home. Mm -hmm. I think if we said nursing home, that would indicate to the family that that would be a life condition, but a lot of times we try to make information a bit more positive than it would be in in real life.
0: I think you're exactly right. So what happened next?
1: I then talked to the family and I said, family, we're really trying to determine what you think the patient's wishes would be. Would she rather have natural care or would she want to have sophisticated care to keep her alive even if she is partially or fully paralyzed or having difficulty with speech? And the family said, I know she wouldn't want to be paralyzed but we still don't know what to do. At this point, the neurosurgeon, who had been very patient and listening and contributing what he could, said, I understand your anxiety, but really, if we do surgery, I have to move on this before things deteriorate and before things clog up in the operating room. I asked the neurologist to then comment, and he said... "'You know, family, you need to understand "'that your grandmother will never, ever be the same. "'She won't live independently. "'She can't drive her car. "'She won't be able to sew. "'She won't be able to cook a pie. "'She will have a long time in a rehabilitation center. "'She will have to live in a nursing home.'" The family was getting more distressed, and so then I said to them, "'Do you have the name of your grandmother's "'primary care doctor?' "'Unbelievably, they did.'" They knew the name, they knew the phone number, and the next amazing step, I was able to find the primary care doctor on the phone.
0: Wow, that's quite a feat to be able to actually get in touch with a a real-life person who knows the patient who's been taking care of them. So were they helpful?
1: Oh, she talked to the family. I got her on the phone. She talked to the family. She said, I know your grandmother well. She would not want to live in a nursing home and be paralyzed. Do not agree to the surgery. This was kind of a two-step thing. I had to think of calling the PCP, and then I found the PCP. Now, you realize whether the patient had a living will or not a living will, that really had nothing to do with all of this decision-making. Then I thought, maybe we have someone on call for palliative care. I had a very good clerk in the ED who happened to find the head of geriatrics who answer the phone? Listen, she said to me. You need to be very clear and tell the patient's family. We aren't talking here about an operation and a week in ICU, and the patient will go home. She'll need intensive rehab. We're talking about many months, maybe a year. She will never live independently. She agreed to speak with the family, even though she didn't know them and went over what would be the likely timeline and the outcome after surgery.
0: So at this point, you've had your own discussions with the patient, neurosurgery, neurology, the patient's PCP, and palliative care. So this is truly a team-based approach to try to give the family all the information that they need from all the different specialties about what is going to be the outcome. For this patient.
1: And I think understanding the team approach is important because an ER doc can't do that. I couldn't say with complete certainty how long the rehab would be. We didn't even get into the finances of this. I've been told by patients who have a stroke that Medicaid will only pay for 30 days of rehab, for example. We didn't go into any of the finances or any of these other details. It shows how complex these decisions can be. And adding the time frame in of needing to go to surgery is is really adds to the complexity of it. If you have a patient who has been deteriorating, even then, it takes a family sometimes several days to decide what they want to do and if they want a natural course or not. So things happen to fit well with this patient. The neurosurgeon left the ED. Neurology stayed with the family. It turned out they neurologist himself had a deep interest in palliative care and geriatric neurology. He answered more of their questions about rehab and outcome. The family agreed to a natural progression and comfort care. She was admitted to neurology and she died the next day. But this encounter took over two hours, and it took so many people standing at the bedside trying to help the family. We also had a cooperative family. There were no conflicts in their decision-making or their concepts of what was going on.
0: So this is a great case to illustrate partially just the complexity of this decision and the immense time pressure that we're under in the ER to make these decisions because there's the neurosurgeon saying, look, if we're going to do something, we have to get her to the OR now. And the family saying, we're not sure. We don't know what's going to happen. So this is this was a unique case in that you were able to take the time to really get to know the family and have all these external resources. Some places will have a palliative care consult service, So here at our hospital, we don't have an admitting palliative care team. We do have a consulting palliative care team that's available during business hours. Some places will have a consulting team that you can get involved. Palliative care is sometimes misunderstood and equated with hospice care or with purely end-of-life care. So I want to take a minute to just talk about what palliative care is and isn't. Palliative care is defined as care that improves the quality of life of patients and families who face life-threatening illness by providing pain and symptom relief, spiritual and psychosocial support from diagnosis to the end of life and bereavement. So we often think of palliative care as just the end of life, but really it's not. It can be from the beginning of a a life-threatening diagnosis, such as a, a metastatic cancer or something like that. In this case, the diagnosis to the point of end of life came pretty quickly in the course of a day. Palliative care in other situations is not purely for the end of life. It can be for providing relief from pain, provide relief from symptoms secondary to side effects of medications, so thinking particularly about chemotherapy. And in some cases, it can not only enhance the quality of life, but has also been shown to increase the length of life, ironically, when you, for example, take away some of the medications and things like that. Tell me some, some key points that you learned or that you would recommend for others that you can take away from this case.
1: I'll do that, but I do want to make a comment about the terms palliative care. Words have a lot of meaning. They have different meaning for us as doctors. And your explanation about palliative care was very good, but when you use the words palliative care to a family or to a patient, they don't understand all that. And I've always felt it was very unfortunate that that was the name chosen for the specialty, that type of care. There are other words that have a positive connotation. Natural care, I think, would be a much better way to to say it. And earlier on, I mentioned that I used the phrase, we can take natural care of your mom. Would she like natural care? Or would she like technological care? I think patients who are not physicians will resonate a lot more with the word natural. And I've tried to use that a lot more in my context with patients who are trying to decide on the complexities of medical care.
0: I think that's an interesting point, that palliative does sound as though you're saying we're just going to take care of the symptoms maybe or ironically sometimes the palliative care service because they're experts in things like pain management they're more aggressive with their pain medications Um, I see patients when I was I rotated with the palliative care service and they would have patients on huge doses of pain medication that they are comfortable prescribing that I would not be as comfortable with as an ER doctor because they have more familiarity with it and usually longer term relationships with the patients although not always when it's a hospital case I agree natural sounds more palatable, ironically, to the, to the um, patients, um, but it doesn't necessarily mean a withdrawing of care. It can mean a withdrawing of certain aspects of care, but actually uh, a ramping up of other aspects of care when it comes to symptom management.
1: I think we all need to change our vocabulary with regards to that. Natural care, supportive care, helpful care, whatever words convey the positive aspects of it to the patient. But there were four things that I took away that I'll try to remember in my teaching and in my clinical care in the future. The first one was I assumed responsibility as the head of the patient's care team in the ED including the consultants. This case would not have worked out as well if I was so busy and other things were happening that I simply left the disposition to one service, and that would have been neurosurgery. I also, the second point, I had to work by my bootstraps, trying to think what could be a respected resource of information for the family. Finding the PCP was such a piece of luck. Finding the geriatrician who was brave and courageous and willing to talk to the family with the information that i gave was was really very good the third point is families need time to absorb the facts that are presented to them two hours is not much for a life and death decision and this family was able to absorb things we let them sit we let time go by without commentary so they could talk among themselves and ask questions. The next thing was, again, using terms such as taking natural care of your grandmother or choosing a natural course of care were much more acceptable to the family and made them feel like they were making a positive decision. And finally, we need to remember that most patients and their families are not doctors. So we have to speak in very clear terms, nursing home instead of rehab will not be able to walk, will have to use a wheelchair, will not be able to go to the bathroom herself. She may not be able to speak to you. These are the kinds of things that people need to hear. We can't skip around the facts.
0: That's such an important point. It's so often that I've heard physicians speaking with families and using words like subarachnoid hemorrhage or subdural. These patients have no idea what you're talking about, no idea of the prognostic factors that would go into that decision. And I think it's, this is one of the most important decisions that families have to make in our ER is what care they want for a very sick and dying, particularly elderly, patient. And it's a very personal decision. I don't know if you've read Atul Gawande's book, Being Mortal... It's a great book, and he talks about a patient he had, and he was having these end-of-life discussions with him, and the patient said, I think he had some sort of advancing cancer, as long as he could eat chocolate ice cream, and watch golf on TV, that was an acceptable quality of life for him. Now for me, that would be something akin to hell, sitting around watching golf all day. I would not be satisfied living in that manner, paralyzed or not paralyzed, but to him, that was an acceptable quality of life, and I think it's very personal, and so it requires an individual decision by each patient and family. Dr. T, thank you again for being on GemCast, and for sharing this case, and some important learning points that we can all take away from it. We won't always be able to coordinate care like this for our patients in the ER, but I think it's something that we should strive for. As a system, we can work towards providing better care through things like incorporating palliative care consults into our emergency department where that's a possibility. And for other patients, it might mean having a palliative care consult when they're an inpatient. Or I know some places are able to give referrals for outpatient palliative care consults for patients who don't require hospitalization, but who have intractable pain or intractable GI symptoms from their medications or from their primary disease. Palliative care is really all about honoring the patient's individual preferences when it comes to important and particularly end-of-life decisions. We've changed the specific details about this case and age, etc., to make sure we protect patient privacy, but really this is applicable across a broad variety of cases for patients that we see all the time. We need to at least think about trying to find out what their wishes were, whether they've discussed this with family or their primary care physician in the past, or whether they have documented most forms that go through what they would want done in various different circumstances. So thank you again, Dr. Tintinelli. It's been great having you on the show. Thanks, Chris. As a reminder, GEMCAST is intended for clinicians. Please see our full disclaimer on the website, soundcloud.com GEMCAST. Thanks for listening.